Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by David Lester, co-founder of Alipop. Listen as David tells stories about how Alipop was developed with an idea of creating healthier alternatives to traditional soft drinks. If you haven't seen Alipop by now, you might have not been in your local grocery store. I highly recommend it. Go check it out, grab an Alipop, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by David Lester of Alipop. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up, and what would you say your childhood was like? I grew up uh, in the northwest of England, just outside of Liverpool. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, if you've ever visited England, you'll know that there's kind of London and then there's everything else. So, yeah, um, you know, it's uh, where I grew up. Um, my friend's parents and my parents were doing jobs like kind of teachers and nurses and firemen and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, my dad worked for the local council as a kind of government job, managing parks and open spaces. My mom was a school teacher, became a, a principal. Um, so, yeah, that, that was interesting because a lot of the lessons that I learned in leadership came from stories my mom would bring home from school and, and the way that she managed that school so you know creating a an environment a community um you know when she was principal you didn't get sent to the principal's office if you were naughty it was a place of refuge you know she was dealing with a lot of kids came from difficult backgrounds so you know there was a, a sofa that you could go and sleep if you were tired there was books there were games um she would have the kids present flowers to the to the ladies that did the lunches at the end of each school year um mm. so you know i from there i uh started a corporate career after college with diageo the spirits company which was super interesting and nobody in my family had ever done anything like that before um yeah. so it was, it was kind of fun um and it was a great company it was also a little weird at times because of mm. the way that people spoke to one another in that corporate environment it didn't mm. feel sort of genuine to me or like there was a bit of a I mean awesome people but the the language at times that kind of corporate language that we all know that you know that yeah. those of us that have worked in corporate environments so um you know it's interesting as Ben and I started to work together Ben my co-founder um you know he never worked in corporate environment before like entrepreneur through and through and so hmm. um yeah that's really kind of reflected into what I would say is a humanistic environment that we built certainly tried to build a, a Olipop. Incredible. I'd love to get into more of that relationship between you two as well. But going back to your own um, kind of education, I saw you went to Nottingham. What did you end up studying mm -hmm. there? Um, and then why? Um, I'd like to say there was a lot of thought went into it. I, I don't think there was. I always surprised me, um, you know, coming to the States at that age or interacting with Americans at that age, they were always seemed much more burned up than I was in terms mm. of what they wanted to do with their lives. And like, you know, they were doing internships and, you know, um, I think the work experience I had up to that point, I worked, um, you know, summer kind of collecting trash, like, you know, it was a very difficult job up early in the morning and, yeah. you know, doing, doing the rounds and things. So, um, you know, I, I studied management studies with Spanish. I knew I loved language. I, mm. I loved kind of travel. Um, and, uh, you know, management was sort of like the 
undergrad sort of generic MBA type, you know, we did a, we studied a bunch of stuff that I made no sense to me at the time, like organizational behavioral theory, like mm. I've never been part of an organization before. So <laughs> I had no context for evaluating theory, micro and macroeconomics. Um, you know, with hindsight, it was reasonably interesting and helpful. Um, you know, and as part of that, I, uh, in the UK, if you study language, you do two years and then you go abroad and then you come back. So that year abroad was very interesting for me. I went and and studied at, at Monterey University in, in Mexico, um, incredible university um, in the north of Mexico. Um, that was an amazing experience. The first time I'd already been outside of Europe properly. Yeah. Um, then I went and worked in Brazil, um, teaching English in, in the favelas and the shanty towns in Rio de Janeiro for three months. Mm. Um, and this was kind of aging myself now, but before <laughs> sort of, there's no smartphones or anything. Internet yeah. was about there. You could like messenger and things back in those days. But yeah, um, so it was, a, it was a real adventure. And then I, I rounded out the year working for a company an import company in Valencia in Spain. So, um, wow. you know, that was super interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, but that not, not a lot of thought and, and certainly in the UK, I think this is still the case. Mm -hmm. It, your degree course doesn't necessarily lead into, um, your career choice. So like, yeah, you know, there's plenty of people in my line of work that were, you know, did English majors or history, or it was basically just prove you can get a, you know, turn up for class and, you know, are intelligent enough to complete these assignments to a certain degree of competence. And then yeah. we'll give you a job and we'll start teaching you the useful information that you need to know. And so that's yeah. essentially what I did. MBA is not as common in the UK, uh, was common at the time. I, so I think it's still the case to do, a graduate scheme so you essentially yeah. apply to you know a large company and they take you into the scheme and, and sort of teach you the skills that you need so yeah i applied to a number of places including diageo looking back now it's one of those life moments where that's a real sliding doors like there was yeah. i think over eight thousand applications and they picked two of us wow. um, to go onto that grad scheme and you know so you know at that point it's not entirely down to competence that you're getting picked out of that lineup, right? Like you do that process another hundred times and you don't get picked basically. Yeah. So um, it was very transformational for me. Um, say an amazing company taught me how to do marketing. Basically they had a, a course at the time, Diageo way of brand building. Um, it was actually something they marketed to the, um, to the city, to investors as, as a competitive advantage for the company. Mm. So I was sent on, a couple of kind of week-long courses um, taught by senior members of the global marketing team on yeah. the theory of marketing. And it was unbelievable, really. And it sort of set the, set the type of my career. Wow. So just out of curiosity, how long did you end up working there um, before you went on to your next venture? I did see you did get into beverages prior to Alipop as well. So how long were you in this role? Yeah, I worked at Diageo for 10 years. So I did four years in London. Um, and then I was, uh, th this is kind of indicative of my life choices. I think these sort of, uh, somewhat naive, whimsical, um, sort of just seeking adventure, but, um, I've done four years there. I, I really enjoyed it. A lot of my friends were living in London. 
But I was like, I'm not living my whole life in London. This is not how this is going to play out. So I said to Diageo, like, give me somewhere else to go that I can go and, and work. And they were like, what about Spain? Like, no, that's a bit too close. I've been there a bunch of times. And they said, what about Australia? There's a wow. job there. And I was like, okay. Um, so I went to Australia and, and lived in Australia and Sydney for four years, which was, which was an awesome experience. Wow. And then I was like, okay, what's next? So um, at the time, one of my bosses actually had become the innovation director for um, Diageo in Latin America and mm. needed somebody to come in and develop a pipeline of products for emerging middle-class consumers across Latin America. Um, it was a time when kind of one of this like 2010 or so um, when the brick economies were a real thing and mm. um, Diageo divested a lot of its uh cheaper portfolio of products and so you now had this huge buying power amongst middle class consumers emerging middle class mm -hmm. um but were individually unable to afford like a bottle of johnny walker black or a bottle of ciroc so yeah. you know the remit was to develop um you know pipeline of products for that consumer within latin america which so i went and worked in sao paulo for a couple of years doing that and at that point i was like this is the best job I could possibly have within this company. It was like so fun and, and living in Sao Paulo. And yeah. I was like, I don't think I'm going to eclipse this. Um, and I also had become a little grumpy with corporate bureaucracy. Like I had a yeah. bad attitude at the time. And I, and, yeah, and I remember having a sort of talk with myself and saying, look, you either need to improve your attitude <laughs> or if you think you're so smart, like go and do it yourself um yeah and so it's just kind of combination things i was also losing a little bit of motivation in what i was doing um i remember sitting in a meeting room in colombia talking about kind of tripling the size of whiskey in latin america over the next five years and, and realizing i just didn't care about that outcome and mm -hmm. you know i remember with my mom like you know kids would go back 10 years after they left the school to visit her because of the impact she had on their lives yeah, and I was like, "This is fun, but I don't think I want to do this for another ten years." Um, yeah, so I basically just let I, you know, why well, I, <laughs> I was engaged at the time. I my now wife is uh, American, so she'd very gamely come down to Sao Paulo to Brazil with me, and mm. um, you know, was ready to move back to the states. And so I said to my boss at the time, "I was like, look, I think I'm done." Um, I'm going to quit. And she was like, well, don't quit. Go to San Francisco, which is where I decided to go to. Cause it's again, very naive decision. I'm just like, it's kind of, I've never been there before. Yeah. It's like, seems like an entrepreneurial place. Uh, the weather's good. It's like <laughs> kind of outdoorsy. Like this seems like a good place to go. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I, she said, look, don't quit, go on sabbatical. And then if you don't like it, you can come back and, and work in New York or, or whatever. And so after a couple of months, I spoke and I was like, look, I don't know what I'm going to do here yet, but I, I'm not going to come back. So, um, mm. and she said to me, look, if your mind's made up, you might want to speak to this guy. He's looking for a business partner. Um, and it was something that had come across her desk through her own network. And, and that turned out to be Ben, wow. who's my co-founder now. We met at a coffee shop in Palo Alto <laughs> um and he had like a little bag of sodas and he's like a crazy guy that you know the sort of guy that wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat wondering what the meaning of life is and then wakes up with that level of intensity the next day um 
And uh, it, it was a very interesting conversation, very different from, you know, my experience at, at Diageo. Um, he told me about probiotics and the gut microbiome and, you know, this like mission that he had. And I was like, oh my God, yes. Okay, fine. I'll, I'm in. Uh, <laughs> and so I worked, um, you know, a year, no salary to kind of help get that off the ground. We, we just, we had nothing. We had no funding or investment or anything at that stage. <laughs> again, massively naive looking back and, you know, it was a very stressful experience that, um, yeah. that first venture OB uh, was where we cut our teeth as entrepreneurs. We learned about our industry, those things I knew, um, you know, kind of developing products and launching products I had some experience in fundraising. I had zero experience in, um, oh, yeah. so, um, so yeah, I, it was just sort of, learn by doing and, and and trial and error really so um so yeah that, that was our kind of routine interesting so to the listeners out there to make it clear to the listeners this is pre-alipop this is obi you said correct that's right yeah so ben and i've been working together for uh 10, over 10 years now um the first venture was very similar to to olipop um it was a healthy soda but it had a water kefir base it was probiotic. Um, it was in a bottle, um, a glass bottle. Um, yeah, so that was that was version kind of 1.0, and that was our first. And and now it's very unsurprising to me why you see a lot of entrepreneurial stories that go it's venture two or three that that really yeah. pops because you kind of need to fail at some stuff first, I think. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm curious then what led to then leading from Obi to getting into then Alipop, this kind of like functional soda in a can, you went from a bottle, what kind of differentiated that for you guys to start this next venture then? Yeah, the, I mean, after Obi, I say it was a very challenging experience that, and, you know, I needed some time just to rest for a period after it. Yeah. Do some self-reflection. Um, I think I had a lot of personal growth to do as well which is is helpful um as an entrepreneur um and but ben and i felt like we were onto something we had tasted success with the product we'd seen it sell pretty well we'd learned some aspects of optimization like the fermentation wasn't wasn't brilliant for scaling mm. glass <clears throat> the glass bottle <clears throat> excuse me was kind of problematic to a degree as well so <laughs> Um, and we were also connected to some of the leading researchers, microbiologists um, in the, you know, in the space <clears throat> by that time. And um, the research was really changing. It was changing from a focus on probiotics to a focus on prebiotics. And I remember yeah. hearing from a guy, Justin Sonnenberg out of Stanford, who'd studied hunter-gatherer tribes. And, you know, really what he's saying is like, look, instead of like pro putting uh, foreign bacteria probiotics into body is of sort of limited value potentially what we really need to be doing is feeding the bacteria that are already there feeding the probiotics already in our gut and if you look at studies of hunter-gatherer tribes there's huge there's two main differences between what we're consuming today and what hunter-gatherer tribes um are consuming and i actually finally got around to reading the sapiens book recently and you know you see it's like yeah. you've got these hundreds of thousands of years of hunter gatherer then you've got like 100 years of agriculture and farming 100 years of industrialization 
and that's it. You know, so our physiology still largely based off hunter gatherer lifestyle and diet. Yeah. And um, you know, hunter gatherers consume like work consume some some tribes still exist today in parts of Asia and Africa and helpful i think to study as well but um you know 200 grams of fiber in a day or so versus our 15 on average mm-hmm. in the west now yeah. and you know over 2000 1500 2000 different types of food in a year um because you're foraging versus our 200 if we're lucky but like we you know processed food is made from four ingredients in the main yeah. you know? so with a bunch of flavoring attached so the impact of that is we've massively reduced the complexity and diversity of our gut microbiome mm. versus what it used to look like. And so a lot of modern illness and disease can really be traced back to issues with the gut, you know, immune response, um, you know, and uh, inflammation, those types of things. Um, so, uh, you know, Sonnenberg's analogy was like, if you're taking probiotics without addressing underlying digestive health, it's akin to throwing seeds into a desert and hoping you're going to grow a garden. It's mm. just, you know, not going to happen. So you need to address the underlying soil health yeah. um, before you start thinking about anything else. And so that was really, you know, Ben's inspiration for the formulation for Olipop. And he spent a lot, I think, went to Japan for a while um, mm. and then came back and, was really looking at what combination of ingredients is going to be most beneficial for the gut. And so yeah. this is the Oli Smart blend that we've now done studies with Beta and Purdue Medical Colleges around. Um, you know, we take this stuff very, very seriously. Like the types of studies we've done are not, even large companies are not doing this level of research around their products and formulation. Yeah. Um, and so you end up with a product that has, nutrient diversity, eight different plant-based ingredients. It has um, nine grams of fiber, a portion of which is prebiotic fiber. And so you're essentially, you know, soda is the biggest um, additional uh, like additive to the global diet of, um, yep. of sugar. So you're essentially taking something which is the biggest problem to the modern diet and, and kind of flipping it. So um we yeah, have a low sugar product with, with high nutrient diversity and fiber. Are you ready to relax and unwind in the midst of your busy lifestyle? Well, I want to pause and say thank you to our mid-break sponsor, Eno. Eno understands that relaxation is productive and time spent outside is never time that is wasted. They offer a range of portable, easy-to-use hammocks and hammock accessories designed to inspire you to explore, connect, and relax. If you're like me, your busy lifestyle quickly catches up to you. Nothing calms me down more than time taking a break, setting out my hammock, and enjoying the peace of nature. Eno is more than just hammocks. They're passionate about people, the planet, and creating a future where everyone can enjoy their time outside. As a member of 1% of the planet, Eno donates 1% of their annual sales to high-impact environmental and social nonprofits that continue to work to protect natural spaces, make the outdoors accessible to all, and preserve cultural traditions across the globe. If you like spending time outside and enjoy supporting brands that align with your values, I highly recommend Eno. Grab your Alipop, head outside, and relax in an Eno hammock. Learn more and pick up your hammock at enonation.com. That's enonation.com, and I hope you enjoyed the rest of the episode. So with, yeah, such a functional uh, product, especially in beverages, I'm curious, how did you guys in early days, and especially now as well, approach flavor? I mean, you're going to convince the consumers on a functional drink, um, trying to switch from their conventional soda, but flavor plays a huge role in that convincing. So how do you guys approach like new flavors? What were those first flavors at launch and why? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, 
I think it was interesting. I mean, Ben is a very smart guy and, and super, he thinks very deeply about things and thinks very structurally about things. So yeah, he grew up eating standard American diet. He was overweight when he was younger. He was eating junk food and sort of had made a switch. And, you know, he kind of talks about it a little bit on uh, podcasts and stuff that he's done. But um, so he's like, I get it. This stuff is delicious. Like, you know, soda tastes really good. Like chocolate bars. I know we were talking once about like Cadbury's cream eggs and how much we love them. You know, like this stuff is it tastes great and it's got amazing memories attached to it as well. Like quite nostalgic. So um, I think he just felt that like the health industry was the health food industry was too niche and a little bit um, uh, the word like condescending at times, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and he wanted to formulate products that everybody could enjoy. And it's like, why, why does soda need to be so bad? It thought, you know, questioning that. What if I could make one that was, was good for you um so you know then you just start to look at uh the um main so so flavors so we started with uh cola was one um strawberry vanilla it's kind of like a cream soda strawberry cream soda yep and the ginger the the ginger lemon was less of a soda play and more of because we're in the kombucha set we're like we should have one that's a bit more of a kombucha profile um that actually has turned out to be our lowest selling skew (laughs) so you know we never we just kind of built soda flavors on top of it and you know i remember launching one of our early launch retailers with erawan in la so for people that don't know don't live in la erawan is kind of like the you know uber health retailers where a lot of celebs go to do their shop you know health shopping and stuff so Mm -hmm. I was somewhat skeptical of how our product would perform in that store because, yeah, you know, we don't have like a bunch of benefits smattered all over the can. It's like, you know, it tastes sweet. Um, and Olipop strawberry vanilla, I think is still the case, is the top selling beverage skew within everyone outside of water. Wow. Um, so I actually don't drink strawberry vanilla that often myself because I find it too sweet for my yeah my palate but um so it's fascinating you, you see like everybody loves soda and you know they don't have a problem with root beer they have a problem where there's 45 grams of sugar and mm. you know high acidity and other ingredients and stuff that are in those products so sure. that's i think has been you know when you solve we found that we're really solving for a major um consumer need um or want uh, which is people love soda and yeah. the memories that come with it and real connection to it. Um, and, you know, if you actually flip that on its head and not just make it neutral, but actually, you know, health positive, that then becomes very interesting. For sure. So for personally, my, my favorite's uh, lemon lime. I think that's uh, a great mm. alternative to like the traditional Sprite or anything like that to the yep. listeners out there. It's great. Um, but then you guys also have an amazing approach at your marketing strategy, such as like partnerships. And I know the banana cream you partnered with the minions, for example, I would love mm-hmm. to hear kind of your approach on marketing, especially partnerships. How did those come to life and kind of talk maybe on the minions one, if you could. Yeah, it's, it's a lot less. Uh, so I, I think there's marketing is complicated, right? So I think it's, mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of different ways you can look at it um, and it depends on your growth stage and stuff as well. So initially what we did was just 
refine a concept. Yeah. And so one of the things we, you know, some of the brands that I looked at early on were brands like Halo Top, Beyond Meat, Seedlip, and Non-Elk Spirits. Mm. Um, these were brands that really understood the categories that they were playing in. So if you take kind of Halo Top as an example, not the first low-calorie ice cream, yeah. but probably the first one to understand that ice cream is about indulgence. And yeah. so if you don't do indulgence, it doesn't matter if you've got three calories or 3,000 calories, no one's going to eat that product. So yep. they did gold packaging, indulgent flavors. They even told you to eat to the bottom of the tub, you know, which yep. Ben & Jerry's doesn't do. So it was like indulgence on steroids, essentially. Um, yep. And, you know, Seedlip understood that alcohol is about special occasions. So where a lot of non-alc brands had fallen down is their packaging just didn't look great. Like it wasn't, didn't look as premium. It didn't look as special, you know, yep. Seedlip, launched in the top 50 bars globally they the packaging is beautiful their photography is amazing cocktail yeah. recipes are like top drawer right so um so my mantra from the outside was we've got to behave like a soda mm. soda is about refreshment it's about fun um so i actually banned our marketing team from talking about functional benefit um because you know investors would ask us initially they'd be like well how are you going to educate people on like prebiotics and i'd would probably guess that now like at least 80% of our consumer base does not know what a prebiotic is. Yeah. Um, and probably only under 5% would actually be able to accurately describe what it, <laughs> what it does in the body. Yeah. Um, majority of consumers don't care that much. They, they, you know, when you look at products like Oreos and Lucky Charms and Coke, people are not buying these because of their founder's story or a farm they were grown on or a particular ingredient that they have. It's because of the way those products make people feel. For sure. So that's what marketing has to be about fundamentally. So initially we didn't heavily invest in marketing. We just got the concept right. We were clear with consumers what this is, which yeah. is like, this is the soda. And so semiotically we behave, we behave like a soda. Um, and then more recently, we wanted to build an emotional brand platform over the top of that. And mm. so we actually worked with a brand strategy consultancy called Squint, um, who it's like a process of a year worth of research. As we looked at Soda, we looked at the category that we'd built um, and, and decided how we wanted to position ourselves emotionally within this space mm. and really go toe to toe with the likes of Coke and Pepsi. And so... You know, that's where the, the real love territory came from and precipitated in our first ad that we did with Camilla Caballo, mm. um, which has been performing exceptionally well. Um, you know, we kind of did that in-house, you know. Yeah. Um, so um, the rest of the stuff, the partnerships and things, um, you know, there's we have an amazing team and, you know, a particular guy on the team, Stephen Vigilante, is you know unique kind of startup character you know you find these people probably kind of myself in this at this point like that would not survive you know two weeks within a corporate organization um yeah. and they have curious they're very comfortable with um ambiguity and disruption and change and they're kind yeah. of restless and you know probably have a bunch of like you know, 
uh, weak points in certain things and then really spike in other areas. Like you find a lot of entrepreneurs, say like myself, quite similar. For sure. Um, and um, so, yeah, you know, Stephen has opened some incredible doors just through his own curiosity, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I do love the John Hegarty quote from BBH, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. So, mm. um, you know, take Minions, for, for example, uh, that was just a cold outreach on LinkedIn. The Universal just reached out wow. to us and were like, hey, we love what you're doing and would you want a partner? And we were like, yes, but you realize we're a pretty small company. And they were like, look, we just love your brand and we think this would be super cool. And so then, of course, we were like, well, we're not going to do this by a half measure. Let's go all in. And so, you know, this is where the banana cream came from because minions love banana. And, yep. you know, I was trying to... Ben about it he was like I was actually just thinking about banana soda because I was thinking that would be the most difficult formula formulation to develop yep and uh so we did we initially the idea was we'll do it as a joke you know and like it'll probably taste disgusting but that'll be part of the the sort of yeah marmite approach it'll be like a love yeah. it or hate it type thing um Ben is a very skilled formulator and it actually ended up tasting amazing to the point wow. that and um, we brought it back as a permanent skew afterwards. So, so yeah, I, I think do interesting things is a good, yeah. you know, as, as you get into it. Um, for sure. But initially for brands under 50 million in revenue, you should be focused on your concept. Um, and, uh, you know, marketing can be a bit of a distraction and an expensive one at that. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to hear. Um, so you guys sell direct to consumer. You're also rolled out in retail as well percentage wise what would you say is direct to consumer on your site and also in comparison to retail where how, how are you guys selling now uh the direct consumer business is under 20 percent at this point um yeah. it at one stage in our business it was like 50 percent because mm. you know we launched just before covid so that's kind of a bit of a problem for a beverage brand because traditionally what you would do is you'd go into store and you'd sample people and then because they'd never tried your product before you know yeah and we couldn't sample anybody like interestingly mm -hmm. we've never done sampling from this product before wow um at, at any kind of scale so um we pivoted all of that budget into dcc and you know to give Stephen props again he was he was the guy that came he actually came to me a month or two before um before covid hit you know mm. wasn't really even on the radar at that point it was like hey i really think we should be you know doing more with dc like can i take a look at it and you know in my mind i was like i don't know heavy it doesn't feel like a right that you know a great channel for us but i was like sure whatever you know go, go and take a look at it yeah and he'd started to figure it out and just in the nick of time and covid hit and so we were mm. like okay <laughs> now yeah. we're really going to go after it and you know cost of inventory on on ad inventory was low at the time and you know the cac rates were insane so yeah it's almost like any cpg business that did not build a d2c platform during covid really missed out because yeah i don't think sure. you get that opportunity again like trying to trying to do now what we did then would be like very very expensive For um sure. and it just you know it, it was an opportunity that was there and we, we took advantage of it absolutely well, I like to conclude each episode with this. Um, if you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? Um, 
I still find a lot of the time vulnerability, humility is like the biggest areas of learning for me still now, you know. Um, So those are the things I think that lead you to a growth mindset and the sort of adaptability um, that you need to be an entrepreneur because you can't, there is no book you can read on it. There's, you know, what we're doing now, nobody's really done before. So there's people I can chat to to get advice, but, you know, you kind of have to, if you're doing something truly transformational, you're kind of going to be on your own. So the skills yeah. you need to learn are in a ones of adaptation and, and personal growth. And, um, you know, you have to, that, that's, you know, I think Ben said this to me at the beginning of our time together that, you know, entrepreneurship for him had been as much a personal journey as it had a professional one. Mm. And I, that's what I find really interesting about it um, is being challenged and learning about yourself. So um, those are the important things, you know, the societal success metrics are sort of yep. kind of random, you know, like there's nothing to dictate that Olipop would have been this successful or not. I, I think, again, you could have run this movie another three times and it maybe didn't work out as well as this, yeah. but um, you know, what you do have control over is um, the process and, you know, are you enjoying it and make sure you've got boundaries around what you're doing so you know you're uh making the entrepreneur experience work for you um rather than burn you out um and then everything else is like kind of you know perhaps it doesn't you know people now sort of say to me at this point my guy sam president what you guys are doing and nobody was saying that to me four years ago but i actually think it was more impressive what we were doing because ben and i had to get back on our feet after a failed venture we had to raise capital off a powerpoint deck we had to build a team from nothing we had to get in a store with no distributor like those were yeah impressive things so when i speak to entrepreneurs that are maybe a little less far down the path i'm like look you're you're doing it right now society won't be telling you um i don't know you might not be getting invited on a podcast to talk about it whatever but you know it's that it's it's impressive what you're doing so hold your own value in that and um so once you have that kind of side that also helps get your ego in in check too so sure. um you know at this point i i understand that a lot of our success some of it's built on, built on chance some of it is like the team that we've built it's not necessarily what i'm doing per se yep. um so it just kind of keeps things in perspective absolutely well david thank you so much for joining me today and to the listeners out there make sure to check out alipop at drinkalipop.com Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.